1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Daniel Paris. I'm delighted to have as my guests today Morvan Lalouette. He is a PhD candidate at the University of Kent and Dr. Ben Noble. He is an associate professor of politics at University College of London. They are the co authors, along with Jan Mati Dolban, of the just published Navalny Putin's Nemesis and Russia's Future. That is the first full-length biography account of a a pivotal figure in Russian politics and society right now. Gentlemen, thank you so much for for, uh, agreeing to be on the show. Thanks for having us. Thanks. You have the first mover advantage. Congratulations. Uh, So uh, I understand the tale that you told about why you wrote this book was simple. Does one of you want to chime in with the very simplistic and, boy, let's fix this problem reason why you wrote this book?
0: Yeah, well, it was just being inundated with questions from people who don't follow Russian politics to uh, for us to say, okay, what are the resources that will allow us to make sense of who Alexei Navalny is? And those requests for information peaked really when Navalny returned to Russia at the beginning of this year. And my next door neighbor, at CIS, as in the academic who has their office next door to me on the top floor of the of the CIS building, the School of Slavonic and East European Studies at UCL, Dr. Sean Hanley said, well, if you can't find a book, if there isn't a book out there, write it yourself. So I sent a Twitter message
1: to Morvan and Jan on the 29th of January, and the rest is history. And you, you three are all at different institutions, but you're all young academics. How, how did you happen to know each other and that you would be able to work together on this project so quickly? Because this is a f- This book was produced rapidly, written rapidly, produced rapidly, distributed rapidly.
2: Uh, We knew each other from Twitter uh, and uh, I had met Jan once, but I didn't know Ben. And uh, yeah, we were a bit active on Twitter and this is how Ben Noble found us.
0: Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd met Jan once at a conference, but never met Morvan, but knew that they were both doing excellent work. And I think it's if we think that Twitter sometimes is a bit of a hellscape, this is one success story that it makes it can make you aware of people. It puts people on your radar. And so I knew that they were producing independently really good research. So I thought if I am going to be able to put together
1: a team to write a book on Navalny at speed, these are the two to do it. Excellent. Well, uh, the I, I agree with you uh, at least on one point there—that uh, a rare positive usage of social media. <laughs> this should be trumpeted because, uh, in my own experience, I, I haven't had that yet. Uh, congratulations! <laughs> so, uh, th- this book is important. Navalny is an important figure in the pre in the green room and in the discussions beforehand. Uh, you- I observed to both of you that I um, have a concern and I think your book addresses it really nicely. Why well, I think it it, it should be uh, read closely by people following Russia about the difference between the per Western perception, the Russia watcher perception of Navalny and Navalny himself. And your book is structured in a very nice way to, I think, make sure readers get a sense of Navalny in his context, not how Russia watchers want to see Navalny. Can you describe how you've set up the book, kind of the three silos, and how that addresses that that perception issue?
0: It goes back to the origin story for the book. I think that we were frustrated as people who have been following Alexei Navalny independently before his poisoning and before his return to Russia at the beginning of this year. We were frustrated by the media coverage, less the Russia watching community coverage, but the media coverage in the West about Alexei Navalny and about Russian politics more broadly. It can be very Manikin, very black and white, very good versus bad, Navalny versus Putin, good versus evil. And that narrative, that simplistic narrative was being politicized in a way that meant that people couldn't understand certain elements of the Navalny story. For example, Amnesty International labeling him a prisoner of conscience, but then taking it away, pointing to past statements that he's made and then relabeling him a prisoner of conscience. So I think that added to that sense of complexity. And we wanted to write a book that broke down that black and white approach that binary approach to understanding Navalny and Russia more broadly. Uh, and we could do that because it's not as if we've got any skin in the game. We're external academics, we can say we're going to look at the shades of grey without that being interpreted necessarily as political.
2: Yeah, if I may just add to this and uh, I can then explain the three the three silos, as she said, there's, there's another uh, type of politicization that we wanted to avoid is either, on the one hand, overblowing the importance of Navalny and saying, well, if there was a free election tomorrow in Russia, Navalny would defeat Putin outright because he's that beacon of freedom for all Russians. And on the other hand, that, uh, well, Kremlin or pro-Kremlin talking point that Navalny is just a blogger. And this is a more subtle politicization surrounding Navalny case that we wanted to avoid. And by putting Navalny in, in, in context, by looking at what kind of support does he actually have in Russia, try to, to convey what's the, the real place of Russia uh, of Navalny in Russian politics today. And so how we did this is in the first three chapters after the introduction, we divided Navalny's uh, career, Navalny's activities in in three strands, the anti-corruption activist, the politician, and the protester. So, of course, this is, in a sense, artificial because Navalny has been these three roles for much much of his life and active career in politics. But we thought that since we're not going down the traditional biography routes with with uh, uh, precise chapters, uh, I don't know, childhood, youth, and then uh, business career, whatever, uh, we felt that this simplification uh, ha- could help the reader uh, grasp the, also the breadth of, of uh, Navalny's activity, which is which is clearly something that sets him apart from other opposition politicians in Russia today.
1: I wonder if, if part of the issue is in structural in terms of media, that a newspaper account doesn't have the time or the depth to, to point out the subtleties, uh, whereas a book or academics can. And a newspaper account, even a good one, you know, uh, the big read in the FT, even that type of account still is strongly biased by the expectations of what they'd like to see in Navalny which is what my my issue uh, for Western media treatment of him as opposed to what he is. And I think, again, you're you're putting out not in the traditional biographical sense, but in, in his functional sense, these three different functions that he has followed uh, is is very, very uh, helpful. Let's let's you know, kind of dive into the, the Navalny that that um, the newspaper readers don't see.
0: I was just going to say that it sounds uh, maybe a bit of a cliche that the academics come along and say, oh, it's far more complicated than (laughs) uh, (laughs) you non-academics think it is. And hopefully we're we're doing more than that, uh, because you're right to say that it's not just a function of uh, the existing assumptions of people. It's not necessarily just a function of the length of a newspaper piece not being able to get into the subtlety. It's driven by what people want to see in Navalny, this desire in the West to see somebody who's going to be a natural ally of them. That, for example, if he were to be elected president of the Russian Federation, then he'd immediately be on board with the Western agenda. What we show in the book is that that's just not the case. And that wishful thinking can lead to real problems. It can lead to those moments of 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 jarring when uh, people in the West think they know how Navalny is going to react to a certain incident, but he reacts differently, and then they maybe feel betrayed. But Navalny doesn't owe anything to the West. He's a Russian politician in Russia, granted now behind bars, and there are certainly people in the West who want to help him. But uh, at the end of the day, his fate is going to be decided in the country. And so the book, yes, you're quite right, is an attempt to say, stop looking at Navalny through Western glasses, try and understand where he's coming from, what he's saying, why what he has said has changed over
1: time by thinking about the Russian context and how that's evolved over the last 20 years. And I think that the Western context is that the the projection of what I would call classical liberalism onto Navalny is a function of the Western. Some Russian watchers or the mass media wanting to see a particular outcome, a projection, and not just seeing through Western eyes, but literally what they would like to see happen in Russia. This has been an issue for centuries, really, as uh, Westerners have engaged uh, Russia and project their own expectations. and And Navalny is almost perfect. He's telegenic. He speaks perfectly. He's really good on YouTube. I mean, the, the technology skills there. He makes very good videos. There's no doubt about it. So it's easy to project onto him what a western observer or writer would like to see but let's let's delve into navalny the lawyer navalny the businessman the corruption candidate uh, corruption campaigner very interesting stuff really good videos and then finally the the uh, navalny the the politician do you want to start with the corruption ben or or sure. um... you go for it move on
2: <laughs> <laughs> well so so in the in the um uh, protester, uh, sorry, anti-corruption activist chapter. We we kind of trace what um, made only famous in the first place, uh, and what is, in a sense, his distinctive contribution to to what you have called the. The liberal tradition or, or the liberal camp in, in, in Russia, which was to bring the issue of corruption uh, to the fore and to use it as a way to mobilize people and to draw uh, uh, people to liberalism. Because, of course, Navalny is not uh, the typical liberal, although he does advocate some definitely liberal uh, politi- uh, policies and he has liberal politics. Of course, he advocates a rule of law state, democracy, independence of justice, free media, etc. So all this is present in his agenda. But at the time where he, he starts digging into corruption, I think that that he he finds this as an attractive, graphic um, way to draw people to this agenda that is, for obvious reason, for everyone, for anyone who knows Russia, uh, completely unattractive to people and. Um, and so with different steps from minority shareholder activism, his blog, then his investigation on, on stakes procurements using the new openness and government in Russia on the in the Medvedev years not only brings both a, a technical approach to corruption, where he shows with Legal documents, databases, etc. How corruption actually operates in Russia, and he finds a way to package it in, as you said, Daniel, uh, a, a fun, engaging way. Even before YouTube, his blog was actually fun to read with with uh, memes, and 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 this is, of course, what draw Western, drew and still draw Westerners
1: to him. Can I I ask one question about the bureaucratic campaign or or the the corruption campaign? And it's about Russian bureaucracy. I think Western observers of Navalny on the corruption side are amazed by the documents that he digs up. And I think there's an explanation there they're not very familiar with, which is as Russia watchers, we're all. Uh, uh, accustomed to the extremely bureaucratic nature of Russian political culture, Soviet political culture, and Russian political culture before that. And so uh, I think uh, someone who's not that familiar with that would be surprised that the documents that they dig up even existed in the first place mm-hmm. and then become available one way or another. But I, I think the he's been very successful as, uh, as a uh, publicizing corruption because the to some extent that Russian political culture can't even help itself, it produces voluminous documentation of corruption in a way that maybe some other political cultures would have put less pen to paper and document the transfer of properties quite the same way that uh, Russia seems to do. Is that, has that come up in conversations before about how almost easy it was for his team to, to document the corruption?
0: I don't think anyone would say that it's easy, but I think you're quite right that their capacity to do it is based on the idea that there are lots of bits of paper that maybe many bureaucrats don't think anybody is gonna bother to look at. And certainly in my own research, I've capitalized on that with the State Duma. They make lots of information available, I think because they think nobody is gonna have the patience to sift through it all, so you can find some juicy nuggets. Of course, what Navalny and his team have dug up are far more interesting than what I dig up in the Duma, but it's the same logic that just the sheer amount of paper means that it's a happy hunting ground to find stuff. We should also say though, that this is another important dimension of the book. We don't just look at Navalny and those three strands, we also look at how he has adapted and how the Kremlin has adapted to him over time. And one of those clear adaptations is that when Navalny and his team carry out these investigations, exploit the openness, the sometimes surprising openness of the bureaucracy in terms of the information that you can get, then the authorities respond to that and they cut it down. They uh, bring down the barrier. They make it much more opaque. They make it much more difficult for people to find the, those juicy nuggets that I mentioned. And so the Kremlin definitely adapts to those openings that Navalny and his team exploit. And I should say, you know, uh, Navalny is responsible for the aesthetic and for the broad thrust the use of social media but one of the reasons why his videos are so slick is because he's got a really good team around him who have been able to bring their own skill set so it's not just Navalny alone and that's one of the things we try and make clear in the book one of the reasons why these investigations exactly one of the reasons why the investigations are so impressive is because he's got lots of people working flat
1: out at the same time. In the last few weeks, uh, those people have had to come to the fore, uh, Leonid Volkov in particular, but uh, Lyuba Sobol, who's had to flee. One more question on the, on the corruption side. And I, I think you addressed this, but again, it struck me. Silo about corruption and his success in uh, showing the extensive corruption a kleptocracy has had, I think, zero impact on the polity. And that's, an assur- that's a subjective assertion. Feel free to disagree. Uh, that is. Russians turn a blind eye; don't care. It's not enough to make a difference. What what is the weight? We've seen the you can see the weight of protest. You can see the weight of the politician, Navalny, and rigged elections, and so forth, But you you can see it. But for all, other than YouTube views, the anti-corruption activity, which has involved not just Navalny and Medvedev, but many of high-ranking officials seems to have had zero impact other than in the West. I think, again, feel free to disagree. I'm just kind of ra- 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 waving a flag in front of you. On its own, corruption isn't going to move the needle. H- how do you respond to that?
2: Well, I think, first of all, to say that, I mean, Russians did react by, by and in decent numbers, uh, around the hundreds of thousands, uh, uh, to, to this in particular to the Medvedev uh, investigation in 2017 and where that year Navalny was able with that YouTube video and with his political appeal to bring people up to the streets. So so now the, then the political system itself has not necessarily reacted to this. But if you look at, at um what Russians tend to consider as the, best the most important problems their country face, they, would, they will list corruption among the most important ones. Um, now, uh, it's possible that uh, this focus on corruption has diminishing returns because, of course, well, you had Medvedev, then you had Putin. And then, I mean, it can only go downhill from there. And if the political system is not reactive to this pressure, uh I think it can uh, obviously foster a, a sense of powerlessness and a, and a sense of uh, and the second issue i think beyond this issue of diminishing returns is is whether people are ready in order to fight corruptions to follow uh, an adventurous politician advocating liberal policies and then we turn back at, at the experience of the nineties where where you had one politician, the first president of Russia, who campaigned uh, already under the Soviet Union on the anti-corruption, anti-enrichment of the elite platform. And we know how the story ended. And, and this is not necess- this points to, to probably the biggest challenge for, for people in, like Navalny in, in today's Russia. Maybe Ben wants to add something.
0: I was just going to add, Dan, to your point on it not really uh, changing the needle. We can point to a particular example of that. When the Putin's Palace video was released on YouTube at the beginning of this year, we, I mean, now it's had more than 180 million views. Levada did a poll shortly after it was released, and it turned out that a quarter of the adult population in Russia had watched it. But then when they asked questions like, has it affected your perception of the regime or your level of support for Putin, we didn't see much change. So we got the idea that these investigations are really slick. Lots of people watch them. They sort of do lead to a certain type of splash, but it's not as if it translates automatically yep. into people gasping and saying, oh, goodness, I didn't know this about the current political regime, let's go onto the streets, let's, uh, you know, man the barricades. That's not the case. Uh, So I definitely agree with what Morvan has said about powerlessness, a sense that this is an issue that's been on the agenda for a while as a critique of the political system, and maybe any shock value that it could have has gone. But that's also one of the reasons why Navalny, when he tried to run in the 2018 presidential election, he wasn't just a one-trick pony. He moved beyond anti-corruption as a message and put together uh, a platform, including... Including some left-wing policies, and that is a sort of indication of him being a politician, wanting to put together a broad coalition, and maybe be, being slightly more populist than the liberal uh, image that some people might have of him, um, that wouldn't necessarily resonate with broader sections of the
1: Russian population. Well, let's let's use that as a, a shift from from corruption to both politics and protesting the two other silos that you have and they're very close to one another. It's an interesting choice that you've made to split them because I, I kind of see them as, as overlapping clearly, but uh, you know, it's, it's been a, a challenging time to being a protester in Russia is not an easy calling being a politician in Russia is an even more challenging calling. Uh, he's tried both. He's tried to be a politician via protests and he's, he's supported his protests via claims to being a politician, but it's it's uh, been hard. And again, his politics are not the politics that we ascribe to him. They're his politics. Let's let's go into that path. Well, for
2: me, the starting point of of Navalny's politics is that he is a liberal and he has been for a very long time. He he, in a very interesting book of interviews he made with a journalist in the beginning of the 2010s, he said like when he was a teenager already, he found himself a liberal um, defined as. Uh, defined first uh, in the political context at the time as someone who supported Yeltsin, who supported privatizations, who supported, was clearly anti-Soviet, who wanted Russia to be a democracy, whatever that means, and a, cap- a capitalist uh, free market economy, whatever that could mean to Russians uh, circa 1991. And he cheered when when Navalny, uh, well, me, Boris Yeltsin, excuse me, uh, crushed uh, the Russian parliament, the Soviet Supreme in, in 1993. And then uh, he explains this as a result of his uh, difficult business career. Uh, he realized that the promises had not been kept, that the principles of liberalism had not been upheld because well, the 1993 crisis where you have a president shelling his own parliament then the 1996 reelection of Boris Yeltsin, which was probably not the freest and fairest election that uh, the world has known. And so he he. And, and this is in his own rendering of how it happened. He begins to harbor doubt, to harbor doubts about liberalism, and uh, he also begins to harbor doubts about liberalism because he finds they're too socially liberal, as we would understand in the West. They're too soft on immigration. They're politically correct, and so these these two threads, let's say, uh, uh, the, the his failing business career, the fact that, as he said, he realized that in money in, in Russia, sorry. Uh, money grows from power, his the problems with immigration, with the situation in, in the Caucasians, this all brings them to, to try and experiment new agendas, new slogans, new
1: ideas that we try to, to follow across across the book. And so again, that's the, the uh, I think, while Navalny and, and uh, in many ways more visibly until a few years ago, uh, Yavlinsky move away from liberalism the he in Russia, however, that's defined. The Russian kind of Russia watchers still aren't moving away and are, are you know, again projecting onto uh, them. And now, Yavlinsky's made it very, very clear that he can't be tagged as a liberal anymore based on his <laughs> most recent uh, political performance. He's still hanging on. in in the, in the Duma, but as a, a really a friend of the regime. So uh, he, he evolves as a character through the experience of, of the rough and tumble experience of the 1990s in, in Russia. I was a graduate student for half of that decade there and it was indeed uh, uh, shifting sands to say the least in terms of, of politics, not to mention everything else. And, and then the protest element, so as politics change, But he becomes almost like a professional protester. Uh, And that that's an interesting element to its high visibility, gets people out on the streets. But one again has to say, okay, what what does this achieve? And the answer is we don't know yet, but it's it's a facet of professional organization of protests and getting people out. Can you describe that a little bit?
0: Well, it's clear that when Navalny tries to form a political party, the usual organisational manifestation that we think of, that we associate with politicians, he's frustrated at every turn. He isn't able to set up a political party. And so he says, OK, but I still need to form a movement in order to be a uh, a significant influential political force and so he turns to protest as the way to advertise, to in- sort of boost his profile but also to get supporters on board and that's very much the reason why in your mind, Dan, you say the political and the process they're fused together. We separate it in the book because we try and tell the story of Navalny attempting to be a quote-unquote normal politician, running in elections. so we talk about him running in the 2013 Moscow mayoral race and trying to run in the 2018 presidential Election. Uh, but protest is a way in which he creates a, a Russia wide movement. He moves out from the confines of Moscow and tries to be seen as a political figure of national significance. And in the book, one of the things that we think is a, a novel contribution so, even to those who know lots about Alexei Navalny, know all the stuff in the rest of the book, in chapter four, when we look at protest, we think that's an original contribution because we draw on Jan's work, his research, his conversations, the interviews that. That he did with Navalny's supporters and activists in the regions between 2017 and 2021. And with that research, you get the sense of Navalny broadening out, creating this organization uh, in lieu of having a political party. But you also get a view of Navalny from the bottom up. You say that one of the problems with uh, commentary on Navalny in Russia is we're using our Western assumptions and our Western viewpoints. It also means that we can look at Navalny and Russian politics from the top down. But with the voices that we get from Jan's research, we can see people complaining about certain features of Navalny, that yes, he claims to be a Democrat, and yet he runs his network of regional offices in a very top-down fashion. We also get people's different views on certain policy positions that he has, whether they agree with uh, his calls for uh, a relatively strict um, uh, visa regime with workers from Central Asia. So chapter 4 hopefully is it is good for multiple reasons for making it clear how the political is related to the protest for how he sets up this organizational network which I should say was being dissolved when we were finishing the book it was that weird really weird situation of constructing the narrative of creation of an organizational structure and we were reading in the news every day it being attacked and then eventually being dissolved so that's that's the way that we try and separate out the story of the political and the protest. Uh, And it's just really
1: shocking the degree to which that has all crumbled uh, over the last six months. So let's, let's use that as a segue to kind of uh, some, some other issues that I wanted to address briefly is, and, and the the first is the state associated with the election, but maybe not associated with the election. The state's crackdown has been extreme. What what has been the, the kind of follow-up to your book and your experience? The book came out a few months ago in, Europe first. Now, just coming out in in North America, getting a lot of coverage. What has been, you know, your your experience, or your your if you had to write in a, a addendum, an appendix to the book, what what would it be? Uh, given given what's happened the last few months since you uh, sent the TypeScript off. It's, it's a silence. Uh, apparently, it's a yeah. tricky one. <laughs> it, it is a
2: tricky one because, as Ben said. Um, And and as I think we should insist upon is that we have witnessed in almost a year a bit more uh, tremendous transformations in in Russian politics. This is the most massive political repression that we know under Putin. Uh, It can be argued that Navalny's organization was the most important organization independent from the Kremlin and the opposition in, in Russia today. And it has been repressed accordingly. There had never been so many arrests after a demonstration in post-Soviet Russia. There had men, never been so many criminal cases brought against protesters. So, so we're seeing, and of course, uh, how can I forget this? Uh, there had never been such a high profile opposition leader uh, being the victim of an assassination attempt. So so this is. these are dramatic events that we, we followed as we were working through the book, and the the strength, the pace, the breadth of the the, the repression makes it hard not to to write a kind of obituary to to Navalny's movements. And and this is something, again, to insist on that dimension, that we did not uh, foresee, and I think that nobody foresaw it. uh, When we started writing, it happened in a couple of months. And when we started discussing the end of January, we were like, not only will go to jail, that seems for sure, but maybe his organization will be able to tread on. This didn't happen, and and it's it's very difficult to see now, given how the political system is closing in
1: Russia, where this is going, and where you can get uh, glimmers of hope. Let's say, which is again yeah. the Western bias. What what any specific response uh, to the uh, to the book that uh, I think. Uh, you know it 's uh, the post book narrative is just in many ways as interesting as the narrative I understand what 's going on in russia but what what has been your reception uh, uh among the russia watchers and and the media <laughs>
0: I'll definitely get to that, but I just wanted to add something that we uh, are currently having discussions about whether we need to write an epilogue for some of the international translations and our response at the moment, it might change very quickly, but our response is that the direction of travel at the end in the concluding chapter is really clear that actually the book shouldn't be that dated. It's clear in the the final pages that we're saying look this is what is going to happen. Granted in the book we don't predict the extent to which the movement has been crushed and yet it's not as if we feel an urgent need to add that extra chapter even if we might do it when the paperback paperback comes out who knows. On the reception it's been really interesting to get uh, reactions from different voices on the whole we're really pleased with the reception and the word that keeps coming up is that it's balanced and balanced in a good way that it's not as if we've written uh, a document that is seen as coming from within Navalny's team and we're here just to applaud Navalny no we don't shy from tackling some of the darker pages, the more controversial pages of um, his history and those of his team members. So that, I, I think, if you know, we're going to come up with one word that seems to be the reaction to the book, it's that it's, it's balanced. And also, it's been nice to hear that for Russia watchers, even if they might know some of the detail, especially at the beginning of the book with the general setup who is Alexei Navalny, there is content in there that is new to them, or that they'd forgotten, or that they hadn't seen put together in one narrative to get the sense of flow to see how the different elements of Navalny's life um, interacted with each other. And Morvan has been on uh, various Russian media to talk about the book. So maybe he can speak about the reaction on those platforms. Yes, please. (laughs)
2: Um, The the reaction, I I went to Dost uh, the day before they were labeled a foreign agent. Uh, I hope this is only a coincidence, uh, and I went on to Echa tour, and I found that the reception was uh, positive. One of the questions that I found um, really interesting that also gets back to your point about perception between Russia and the West is that I, I got asked, like, if uh, Navalny was a Western politician, where would he stand on the uh, political spectrum? And I think this is uh, also speaks to that Question of uh, mirror perceptions, where you get the impression that, and it's a question that Navalny has been asked several times. Like, oh, if you were an American politician, would you be a Democrat? Would you be a Republican, for example? And I found that question very interesting because it points to that also that need for for many people who follow Russian politics and are Russians to to find their their, their way into the, the Russian. Russian and Western political spectrum, which are obviously
1: built in very, very different ways. Hence, um, again, this example kind of projection. Of <laughs> so uh, uh, has Margarita Semyonan uh, give you, given you a call and uh, she's going <laughs> to, to share her, her impressions? Here. So l- let me just share with you as a reaction as a historian uh, in placing, and perhaps we'll wrap up with this, that placing uh, Navalny in the context of uh, Russian... Opposition leaders, which is a very interesting term when applied to Russia, because it's it's hard it's hard to be an opposition leader. But it's dating back to the nineteenth century, and mostly in exile in the West or internal exile, you could argue that uh, what Navalny unfortunately is currently experiencing is internal exile, as it were, and that you know these are opposition voices against a regime that. Uh, isn't going anywhere or has shown little evidence of that. Now that that's not a popular view certainly among my circle of western liberal friends ever hopeful about a positive outcome for Russia but uh, I'll just start throw it out there. And and so I think there's there's a lot of uh, opportunity to see Navalny in the historical context as well. I realize that was not your primary Primary mandate to start with Herzen and end with uh, Navalny, but that—that's one of the ways I was uh, I- I- interpreting it as well. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much. The book is Navalny: Putin's Nemesis, Russia's Future. Jan malti Dahlban, and then I'm joined by Morvan Lalouette and Ben Noble. Thank you so much for for being on the show. Thanks, Thanks for having you us. Much. Much. Yeah, thank you.